Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 12 through 18 this morning. Now, last week, our opening message from this great book was basically talking about becoming overcomers and the necessity of it as we examine Paul's opening salutation, the prayer and greeting uh, that he offered to this beloved church in Philippi. Now, this morning, we're also reminded from Romans chapter 8, 33 to 39, Paul said to the church at Rome, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter yet. Aren't you glad for that word? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul says this, the famed passage in 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you persuaded of those things as well? I hope so. And if we do not understand how to become overcomers, which is here described as being more than conquerors, then the end result is we wind up either with a victim mentality or spiritual casualties on the battlefield of life. And we are at war. And it's nothing new. And I believe the church in America has been getting a wake-up call to the spiritual warfare that we are in today that many have either failed to recognize or failed to engage in that is raging around us. And we're not talking about political warfare. We're talking spiritual warfare, real warfare. The war we fight against fallen angels. The war we fight against principalities and powers. The war we're fighting against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And this group has been running a covert op in the church for nearly two centuries now, and now they are just out in the open like everything else, unashamed of having infiltrated the church, and their mission is to destroy the church through division. Now, the moral and spiritual... I better pause and take a couple of breaths or I'm going to get excited today. The moral and spiritual battle we are engaged in and the threats of the enemy have led many churches today to adopt the mentality and practice of, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And what they've done is they have adapted biblical teachings to worldly principles and moral standards in an effort to be liked and accepted by the world instead of being overcomers and more than conquerors in it. Well, listen, the truth is this. In this age of abounding lawlessness, in this age of rampant immorality, we shouldn't take the attitude, if you can't beat them, join them. We should take the attitude, if you can't join them, beat them. Beat them at their game. And what I mean by that is we must be overcomers at a time when the world is turning against the church. We have to beat them at their own game. When they try and divide us, we unite. When they try and intimidate, we stand unafraid. When they try to infiltrate, we consolidate. We circle the wagons and we stick together. Amen? Now, 
Paul said in Ephesians 5.11, if you remember, have no fellowship. Say no fellowship. No fellowship. No fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. You know how to paraphrase that? You can't join them, beat them. We must be overcomers. We must be more than conquerors, not submitters to immorality and lawless accommodators. Now, this all starts in the mind. It starts with our understanding. And this is why we have to recognize we have the mind of Christ. Amen. Our thoughts should be in concert with His and consistent with His. And Paul is going to pull back the curtain on his own thinking this morning in regards to his own Roman imprisonment, in regards to the personal attacks against him, and how he faces them with a spirit of rejoicing. Our closing point last week in Becoming Overcomers was simple. Remember why we're here. Well, this Sunday morning, we need to remember why we're here. Tomorrow, we need to remember why we're here. And listen, our title this morning from this love letter written in chains from Rome to the church of Philippi is simply this. Now, pay attention to the punctuation. United, we stand. We all know the phrase, but make sure you put the comma in there. And I punctuated it because we need to see this not as a formula, or rather as a formula, and not just a proclamation we're all familiar with. Now I will say this, we're not going to add the second half. United, we stand divided. We're not going to add that because we're not going to let the devil divide us. And therefore we are going to stand. We are going to beat them at their own game by uniting in the truth, knowing the church of Jesus Christ cannot be prevailed against. And in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, John the Beloved said this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? In other words, who is he who has faith? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God this morning? Well, then you have overcome the world. And the truth of the matter is, we need to unite and take a stand in these last days. We need to be fully arrayed in the whole armor of God. We need to be quenching all the fiery darts of the enemy. And we need to be doing all to stand in this war that has been going on since the church was born. But it's going to require a change in thinking. It's going to require remembering every day why we're here. And the battlefront satanic forces are attacking today is something that's always been a problem for the people of God. And Asaph encapsulated it well in Psalm 73 where he wrote this. Truly God is good to Israel. Is God good to the church? To such as are pure in heart. Did Jesus say, blessed are the pure in heart? But as for me, Asaph writes, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. They adorn themselves proudly. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than they could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Is any of that going on today? Yes. Absolutely. Everything in this that Asaph said 
almost caused him, his feet to slip and his feet to stumble is happening in our world today. And he wrote what most of us have been thinking, especially lately, why is evil prospering? Why is oppression increasing? Why are the prideful in power? Why do their eyes bulge with abundance? Why are God's people being attacked and killed? And what we're going to learn from Paul under his circumstances is that if we unite in thinking as Paul does, we can stand even when the world has turned against us and is falling apart. So, united, we stand. And we stand united here today. Amen? Amen. So stand and read with me, please. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And Paul will teach us how we are to think when division is rampant around us. Verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Lord, we need some rejoicing today. We have every reason to, but Lord, we often cause uh, reasons in our life to diminish our rejoicing and our, our thinking, Lord, being uh, hampered by the things we see going on around us. So, Lord, I pray that you would restore right thinking today, and where necessary, you would restore the joy of our salvation. We thank you that you have not taken your Holy Spirit from us, but you have given it to us as a guarantee of our future inheritance. So, Lord, when we're attacked, when we're belittled, when the church corporately uh, is being uh, assaulted verbally by the world. Lord, teach us the mind of Christ through the words of Paul this morning. And Lord, help us to most of all be united and stand against the advances of the enemy in these last days. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we'll find our usual three things this morning to unite our minds with, and the end result will be all who do are going to be able to stand in this age of abounding lawlessness, immorality, spiritual compromise, and deception. And our first point comes from verses 12 to 14. Now, Paul says, I want you to know, brethren, that indicates there was something they were unaware of. And they were unaware of what Paul was about to say because they looked at Paul's circumstance through the lens of normal human thinking. What is normal human thinking regarding Paul's circumstance? Change and house arrests are only negative. There's nothing positive in it. Paul's in a bad way. Paul's in a bad situation. The only thing that needs to happen for Paul is Paul to get out of jail, Paul to be released, the end of this trial to come. Paul says, listen, listen, I want you to know that all these things that have happened to me, including the two years in a Caesarean prison, including the long journey to Rome where people tried to kill me, including the chains that I wear now, have actually turned out as opportunities to preach the gospel. 
There's nothing negative in my circumstance. And right now, you and I need to be able to say, in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of this oppression, in this time of government overreach, in this growing church hatred, that this season of life has actually turned out to be a great opportunity to preach Christ and Him crucified. Yeah. Now, here's the key. We can sit back and only see the negative. We can sit back and only talk about the negative. But before this can turn out for the furtherance of the gospel, we have to turn it into opportunities to further the gospel by preaching it. And Paul said in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, that word can be translated as renovating of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What a statement that Paul uh, is writing from the city that he previously wrote these words to. But it was true in every city. It's true for CCT today as well. We need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Yeah. Holy, acceptable to God. Paul says, in a sense, and we can paraphrase it as, you know what, it's only reasonable for you to serve God after all God's done for you. It's a reasonable act of service. And listen this morning. Paul's body was in chains, but the chains on his body did not get the better of him mentally or spiritually. And we can't allow this season to get the best of us either. We can't allow it to cause our feet to slip. We can't allow it to lead us into feeling like we're stumbling. And listen, here's our first point to unite behind and uh, where we need our minds renovated in our thinking to move forward in this very weird season of church history. Listen this morning. Seasons of adversity are great gospel preaching opportunities. Amen. Seasons of adversity are great gospel preaching opportunities. Now, Paul here makes a point and gives us a reminder. And the point in what Paul says is that the whole imperial guard, these are the elite forces of the Roman Empire, they numbered in 9,000, and Paul said every single member of the most elite portion of the Roman army knows that I'm not a prisoner of Rome, they know I'm a prisoner of Christ. And he says not only that, my boldness, while I'm the one wearing the chains, has created boldness in those who are not chained. And they're being bold and, and fearless in their proclamation of the gospel. Now, obviously, not all 9,000 imperial guardsmen had taken a shift with Paul. But listen, Paul was the one who all 9,000 of them were talking about, including those who had never met him. They were talking about this man who is under house arrest, with a guard changed to each arm by an 18-inch chain who didn't see himself as being in Roman chains at all, but saw himself as a prisoner of Christ. And the point being, Paul's chains reached those who needed to hear the gospel. And those who already believed the gospel became more bold to proclaim it because of Paul's chains. And listen, this is what needs to be happening today. People who know you at work need to be talking about you all the time and not the way they normally do. They need to be talking about you as, you know what? Everybody around me is falling apart, but there's this one person at work who isn't. 
Everybody else is living in complete fear, but there's this one person I work with who has no fear. Everybody's talking about death. This person is always talking about life. And that needs to be spread to everybody we know because we are the people of God in the midst of this pandemic. We are not like the world. We don't have the spirit of fear. We have the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. And everybody around us ought to be talking about how different we are from them. That's Paul's point. Paul's reminder is this, in regards to the death of Stephen, Acts 8, 1 through 4 tells us, Now Saul was consenting to his, Stephen's, death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, who obviously stayed in Jerusalem. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered everywhere tried to outrun Paul and hide from him. What did they do? They were scattered and they went everywhere preaching the word. And listen, when someone like Stephen takes the kind of stand Stephen did, even though he knew he was facing certain death, other saints become bold. Just like we see here with Paul. And listen, the world today should be seeing a united church standing together preaching Jesus. And as we said last week, the whole world is thinking about death. The whole world is living in fear, but we don't have that spirit. And much of the world is turning against the church right now. So you know what that means? Man, it's a perfect time to preach the gospel. Now, Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for what? For adversity. And Proverbs 24, 10 to, 4, or 10 to 12 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn towards death. Hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weigh the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? Will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Now what is Proverbs doing? Proverbs is saying, stick together. We're family. We are born for adversity. And we cannot faint in times of adversity because in times of adversity, we need to be rescuing or delivering those drawn towards death and holding back those who are drawn to the, uh, stumbling to the slaughter. Now, is that easy? No. But you know what? The world is freaking out right now. But we're not. The world is dominated by fear right now. But we're not. The world is afraid of dying, yet we are the exclusive group on the earth that knows that death has been conquered. And the second death has no power over us. And the sooner we unite behind this, the sooner the gospel is going to be furthered during this pandemic season. And Satan is trying to divide us because he knows and history shows that united we stand and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Now let's look at 15 to 17, and I want you to pay close attention in our reread to what Paul is talking about here, and then we'll isolate verse 18 and look at that by itself. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. 
The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerity, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Now, Paul is identifying there's division in the church over him, over his imprisonment. Some who were bold to speak the word without fear did so from envy and strife. Others, he said, were bold to speak the word from goodwill. He says the envy and strife group are preaching out of selfish ambition, supposing to add to his affliction. Affliction means anguish. They were trying to add more pain to the chains that Paul wore on his wrist. The latter group was preaching out of love, knowing that he was appointed by God for this time in the chains in Rome. And its circumstances, as they were, were an opportunity to further the reach of the gospel. And listen, envy, strife, and selfish ambition are never positive attributes in the scripture. Uh, the world might think they're positive, but they're not. And they are always attributed to our flesh, or our old nature. Goodwill and love are obviously manifest manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit. And what all this means is that some of the church saw Paul's chains as punishment for his past. Boy, am I glad Jesus died for my past. And your past. Amen? And we're not going to be punished for our past. So they were doctrinally incorrect. Others saw it as an opportunity to expand their own ministries because Paul was kind of off the grid. People aren't going to be following Paul. Maybe they'll follow us. So out of their selfish ambition, let's start preaching loud and proud and draw a crowd and build a church and gain a following and all those other things. Now, Paul was a prisoner of the Lord and some saw him as such. Now, in Ephesians 4, 1-2, Paul introduced himself as the prisoner of the Lord, and he beseeched them to walk worthy of their calling, with which they were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring, now pay close attention to this phrase, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Not the Spirit of unity, that's a completely different thing. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 6-9, Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But then he says, share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. You know what we see there? We see between Paul and Timothy what the Proverbs wrote. We see them as brothers born for adversity, sharing in adversity together. In other words, they didn't divide when tough times came. And we will look at Paul's response to the divided perception of his situation in our last verse and point. But the fact that he mentions this in and of itself makes our next point, which is this. Listen this morning. The greatest enemy of standing in unity is our flesh. The greatest enemy of standing in unity is our flesh. As we said a moment ago, envy, strife, and selfish ambition are never positive. And they certainly never unite. They always divide. They are works of the flesh. Now in James 3, 13 to 18, James would add this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. 
But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual of the flesh, and what? Demonic. And then he adds this, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, I have mentioned recently that there's a group of people whom I have unaffectionately dubbed as the church police. They think they need to monitor everything anybody is saying and doing, and they remind me of what J. Vernon McGee once said. He said, the only exercise some Christians get is jumping to conclusions and running other people down. And that is true. And many today do this under the banner of exposing heresy and the unfruitful works of darkness. And the truth is, it's nothing more than envy, strife, and selfish ambitions. Right. Now, can I talk to you a minute? Yes. Just say yes. You know I'm going to. <laughs> I've been the victim of this myself in recent years, rather heavily. And you know what? I want to name some names. I want to tell you what some people have done to me. And I want to tell you not to listen to them anymore. Because some of them, you would know their names. Yeah. I've been stabbed in the back more times than you can even imagine. And my flesh is tired of pastors who listen to what someone says about me, but never talks to me about me. Right. I'm tired of those things. I want to tell you who they are. And I want you to know what they've done to me. But if I do, that would say more about me than them. Yeah. Yeah. And I want nothing to do with that because that's the flesh. I want to walk in the Spirit. My flesh wars against that. My flesh wants to say, stay away from this ministry. Don't listen to this person. Don't listen to this guy because of what he's done to me. And here's Paul. Here Paul is saying, as we'll get to in a few moments, you know what? Hey, there's some wrong motives in there, but the gospel is being preached. And listen. Galatians says in 5, 16 to 17, I say then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. And listen this morning, I'm not wishing or fishing for sympathy here. You know, oh, poor Pastor Barry, he's been under attack. <laughs> That's not what I want to get out of this. I don't want to get anything out of this other than for you to realize, listen, I'm human too, and adversity rubs against my flesh. And it riles my flesh just like it does yours. Anybody else here been stabbed in the back? Anybody else here been wronged? Wrongfully? By someone who's supposed to be a brother or a sister? Born for adversity? Does anybody here know what I'm talking about? Yeah, we've all been there. But listen, I want to walk in the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that can't happen when our time is spent attacking other Christians. Because according to God's Word, envy and strife travel with other fleshly companions like confusion and every evil thing. And listen, the greatest enemy of standing in unity is our flesh. The greatest enemy of our flesh is walking in the Spirit, which Paul is clearly doing, even though the church is divided over him. 
and why he's under house arrest in Rome. Listen, the flesh builds itself up by tearing others down. Walking in the spirit leads to humbling yourself before God who will then lift you up. I say we do it God's way. Now, verse 18, Paul responds to all this, the bickering over why he's been arrested, why he's uh, in chains after now four years or ultimately for four years. Paul says this, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Now, we need to be extremely careful with this verse and what it's not saying. Paul's not saying, hey, you know, they might be heretics, but at least they're preaching. He is not saying we need to overlook grievous doctrinal errors because at least they're standing up and saying something. He's not saying they might be lawless and immoral, but the spirit of unity is more important than biblical accuracy. He's not saying any of those things. Listen, the object of his statement is the motive, not the content of the message. Now, he does address that in 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. He said to Timothy, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered what? Shipwreck. Shipwreck. Many names, names. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. 2 Timothy 2, 16-18, Paul says, Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Should ungodliness be increasing in the church? No. No, and their message will spread like what? Cancer, Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. Then in 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10, Paul says to Timothy, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, and Titus for Dalmatia. Now, in these situations, Paul is dealing with content. He is dealing with doctrine. In Philippians, he's dealing with character. But even character in the sense that it's limited to the motives of those who are accurately preaching the gospel. Now, some wanted to take advantage of Paul being sidelined to build their ministries up. Others wanted to do the same by using Paul's imprisonment as a tool to exalt their ministries over his by saying, you know, if God was really with Paul, he wouldn't be in jail for four years for preaching the gospel. And Paul says, with all of this happening surrounding me, what's my response? Whatever their pretended cause, which is the meaning of pretense, a pretended cause, or whether they're preaching the gospel from love, I will rejoice that the gospel is preached. Now, there's a few things that we could glean from this uh, most important uh, passage, and that is, uh, first and foremost, the power to save is in the gospel, not the preacher. The power to save is in the gospel, not the preacher. As far as Paul is concerned, the power is in the gospel in spite of the motive. And at least the gospel is preached. Yes, there are times to name names. Paul did. There are times to expose heresy. 
And that is when the authority of Scripture is being diminished or the power of the gospel is being damaged by the words that are being spoken. Here he says, some people think wrong things about me in my situation, but I rejoice in the fact that they are preaching the gospel and the implied accuracy is there. Now, we have a wonderful opportunity today to clean some stuff up that has been causing division in the church. And I know that you want that to happen, right? Yes. I'm not talking about this church. Like a good Christian, I'm always talking about other churches. <laughs> now, listen to this. Pay attention. Matthew 10, 1 to 4. The he in here is Jesus. And when he had called his... What's the next word? How many? Everybody? Twelve. When he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them... How many of them? Twelve. Powers over unclean spirits to cast them out. And to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, the names of the... How many? Twelve. Twelve apostles are these. First... Peter, Andrew's brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James of Alphaeus, uh, Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, and what's the last guy's name? Judas. Judas Iscariot. Is he part of the 12? Yeah. Did he get Holy Spirit power? Yeah. yeah. Did he cast out demons? Yeah. Did he heal the sick? Yeah. yeah. That's what this says. Now, I believe that there are some people today who would rebuke Jesus for sending Judas out with the others. Because that kind of thing happens all the time. And in John 6, 70-71, Jesus said to them, Did I not choose you? How many? The twelve and one of you is a what? Devil. Jesus didn't discover Judas was a devil. He was a devil when Jesus picked him. And he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the what? Twelve. The twelve. Now listen this morning. There's so much stuff going on surrounding worship today. The most recent battle is standing or sitting. Do you stand during worship? Do you sit during worship? You know what? Who cares? Do you worship during worship? If you want to stand, stand up. As a matter of fact, if you want to do the worship thing right, Worship means to prostrate. So if you want to have the position be the important thing, then you got to be on your face on the floor because that's what prostrate means. It's not about position. It's about the heart. And the church shouldn't be bickering over standing and sitting during the time of worship. Because worship is an act of prostrating and submitting to God. Listen, that's why we don't say you have to do this or you have to do that here. You want to stand, stand up. You want to raise your hands, raise your hands. You want to sit down, sit down. But the whole point of that time is worshiping God. That's why we do what we do. Amen? Now, I have been asked this question more times than I could even count. And we have been accused as a church of being heretics. I have been accused of being the chief heretic. What about singing worship songs written by... Question, people who are part of a questionable church or ministry or a heretical church or ministry. The implication is, can someone who goes to a bad church write a good and God-honoring song? Yes. Judas. Judas. Was Judas among the twelve? Did Judas have the Holy Spirit when they were sent out? Did Judas cast out demons? Did Judas heal the sick? 
Did the twelve return to Jesus after sent out by him? And Peter take Jesus aside and say, you know, um, just want to bring this up. Just between me and you. You know, 11 of us, man, we were getting it done. We were casting out demons, healing the sick. But, you know, Judas was off the side. He couldn't do anything. He said, Have you ever noticed how close his eyes are together? <laughs> Did that conversation happen? No. no. And listen, God can use whoever he wants to use. That's right. And can God speak through a donkey? Yes. And shame on all of you who thought in your minds he's speaking through one now. <laughs> but I'll take it. Amen? God can speak through anybody. And listen, did Jesus give Holy Spirit power to someone whom he knew was a devil? Yeah. Judas cast out demons. He healed all kinds of sickness and disease. And you know, some today would say, well, you know what? Since you got healed by Judas, your healing is not legitimate. You're still blind. You just don't know it. You just think you can see because nobody could have gotten healed by Judas. And that's what some people take the attitude towards. Uh, worship songs that were written by somebody that goes to a church that they probably ought not to be a part of. But listen, it's about the content. And if a worship song came from Scripture, who are we to say it's not of the Lord? But it happens all the time. So... Maybe we should change our name to CCH, Calvary Chapel Heresy, because we sing songs that, you know, uh, questionable people have written. I hope you get my point this morning, right? We've gotten just way, way over the top on nitpickiness within the church. And again, I'm not talking about you guys. You know what? I, I was just so blessed when Charlie announced that second service gobbled up all uh, the gifts for the kids over yeah. at the reservation. Yeah. You know what? Because that's how this place rolls. That's right. We get things done around here. And you know what? We're not going to waste time fighting over stupid stuff. That's right. Or judging one another. You know, gosh, that person. They're standing up there in worship trying to draw attention to themselves. Oh, shut up. <laughs> They're standing there in honor of the risen and resurrected Lord. And that's their expression of worship. Yeah. The person standing up better not be thinking... Everybody ought to be standing here like me. Well, because that means it's about you. And it's got nothing to do with the heart. I actually had somebody that uh, years and years ago, when we were over in our little bitty sanctuary on 6th Street, somebody, as soon as the first downbeat, man, they shot up like there was a spring in their chair. And I asked him, uh, what's up with that? Well, I'm trying to get other people to stand. What are you doing that for? So there's no legitimacy to your standing? You're trying to be the motivation for other people? Uh, that's not how this worship thing works. And people want to sit, they can sit. And listen, I, <laughs> Terry has seen this. The church I was raised in was, you know, the typical denominational church. The choir on Sunday, the special music by people who can't sing after the offering every week. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about, right? You know, or the, you know, uh, somebody's nephew who's had two trumpet lessons is going to play How Great Thou Art on the Trumpet. You know, I went through all that. <laughs> but there, there was a guy. His name was Vic Alvarado. He's now... He's now with the Lord. He would sing How Great Thou Art. And he had a thick, thick Mexican accent. 
he would butcher the language. He would go flat. He would sing the wrong words. But he wept the whole time. He sang. So did we. How dare we try and intrude on something because it doesn't agree with how we think it ought to be done. We can't be that kind of people. Amen? Now, here's the last piece of the equation. United we stand. Listen this morning. Gospel preaching is more effective than name calling. If we're going to reach this world, if we're going to present to them a united front, gospel preaching is more effective than name calling. And listen this morning, if the church police spend as much time telling people about Jesus as they do telling Jesus about people, they'd be a lot more effective and have a lot more reasons to rejoice. And listen, I, like you, have had people do some wicked things to me. People who stand behind a pulpit have done wicked, wicked things to me. And I've had a hard time praying for them. I've had no trouble praying about them. (laughs) But I've had a hard time praying for them. And there's one situation in particular. It took me a long time to get there, to be honest with you, like 10 years to get there because it was nasty and cost me and us dearly and ruined friendships and relationships. It was heinous. It was evil. And I just could not get myself to the place to pray for that person. But you know what? When that day finally arrived and God finally broke me down, and I prayed for that person. Chains fell off of me. And I was free. And now I can look at that whole scenario and rejoice and laugh because it doesn't own me anymore. And you know, the interesting thing about that, I'm sure you've heard the old adage that unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself in hopes it kills the other person. And so many times, we're the one wearing chains over a situation the other person couldn't care less about. So we may as well just let it go and start praying for them and get free ourselves. That may be a word for some here today. Now, listen, we're not talking about a free pass on preaching heresy or promoting errant doctrines. But this, this morning, is a reminder about dividing and name-calling over matters of interpretation that shouldn't be going on in the church. As I've been saying of late, can you be a mid-tribber and still go to heaven? Of course you can. Can you be a post-tribber and still go to heaven? Sure you can. Your eschatological position doesn't determine your salvation. That's from the blood of Jesus and Jesus' blood only. Listen, can you be a Calvinist and go to heaven? Yes, you can. I don't agree with any of those positions. But I'm not God. And none of them are saved any differently than I am. And you know what? They think I'm just as wrong and you're just as wrong as we think they're wrong. But we aren't saved by those positional, non-essential things. I don't like that phrase, non-essential, because I think the whole book is essential. (laughs) Amen? Amen? But there are things that don't determine whether you're saved or not that people bicker over and fight over like posture and worship 
or who wrote the song or this or that. And just, you know, when I was a kid you know, during the Jesus movement, we had one hippie come to church and he came one time because all that was talked about afterwards is that he stuck his toe from his bare feet through the hole where the communion cup goes after <laughs> communion. And I'm pretty sure that's the abomination of desolation because <laughs> dumb stuff. We can't be dividing over dumb stuff. Somebody say amen. amen. And listen, let me just finish up with this. In Matthew 13, 24 to 30, Jesus told a parable to the disciples. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, Man, enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers. Who will say to the reapers? I will say to the reapers. First gather together the tares and bind them in the bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus, in a few verses later, explained the parable, saying the good seed was him. The sons of the devil are the tares. The bundling of the tares takes place at the end of the age, and the fire that they're thrown into is the fires of hell. Jesus gave them the explanation of this, and within the explanation, he said, you know what? There's going to be tares in the wheat. Right up to the end. And I am afraid today that some of the efforts by many are uprooting the church by their division-causing name-calling over matters not essential to salvation. Are there Judas today? Yes. Sure there are. Absolutely. And when they depart from sound doctrine, we expose them. And we name names. Are there God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians who differ on certain matters of interpretation who are preaching the gospel that we should rejoice in? Yes. Absolutely. And listen, preaching the gospel is far more effective in reaching the world than name-calling, right. as is creating a united we stand attitude in the church. Now listen, this may have some personal application for some. And to be honest with you, I was a little surprised after first service. Uh, a little gal who's been coming here for some time uh, came up to me after, after church and said, man, it was convicting. I never thought of this being convicting. This is CCT. We don't do anything wrong. <laughs> It really took me back. I'm convicting you, you sweet little thing. You're convicted by what I talked about this morning. <sighs> yeah, I got some things to fix. And maybe you do too. So let's fix them. Let me share one last thing with you. This will be my last, last thing for this last thing. I found myself in a situation not too long ago where there was somebody who had wronged me badly that I was in the same circle with, so to speak. They were within almost uh, touching distance. And you know what? I didn't like it, and my flesh was raised up, and I wanted to tell him, what's up? And the Lord told me, go shake his hand. Hug him if you can. We had a Jonah conversation. Do you know what this guy did to me? <laughs> Do you know what kind of person this is? The Lord said, go shake his hand. I'm telling you. 
So I said, okay, Lord, whatever you want. I don't want to do it. And I didn't want to do it at all. And my argument was, you know what? He wronged me. He needs to come to me. And I don't want to go shake this guy's hand. And I don't want to go give him a hug. But it was one of those, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So I said, okay, Lord, I'll do it. I'll do it because you want me to. And the situation progressed. And I turned around when it was time. And I went to move toward him so I could shake his hand. And he was gone. And I said, Lord, I was willing. And instantly, the Lord said, it's all I wanted. It's all I wanted for you to be willing. His unwillingness is on him, not you. And all I wanted for you is to be willing. And that whole thing is viewed from a completely different perspective. And this has been a kind of a recent thing, and it's been a big thing. And again, you know, not looking for sympathy. Not, this is just life. And you go through these things That's too, right? right? That's right. So, you know what? Maybe this includes doing something you don't want to do. Maybe this includes doing something you shouldn't have to do. But if the Lord's telling you to do it, I highly recommend doing it. Amen? Because the one who winds up free is you. And if they choose to stay in bondage, that's on them. But you can be free indeed. Amen? Amen. So listen, and I say this again, I, I just, I don't know. I, the whole worship thing just drives me nuts. It's such a wonderful thing. And I've heard just so much, you know, J. Vernon McGee said, you know, when Satan was cast out of heaven, he landed in the choir. <laughs> <laughs> and there have just been so many Things I had a lady come up to me when we were over on 17th Street and say that's the first time this worship has been spiritual. And, you know, she was probably 90 years old, so I wanted to be respectful, but my mind said, well, maybe that's the first time you actually worship. Um, you know, just, just ridiculous things. You know what, if you like the hymns, great, listen to hymns. I've had people come to this place and say, you know what, you need to do more hymns. And my response to one person was, you know what, we were already having worship when you got here. And this is what we do. And worship's not for you. Worship's for the Lord. And this is how we've done worship. We, I love contemporary Christian worship. I did 18 years of hymns growing up. Know them all. I've sung them all. Beautiful. Love them. But listen, that's not my thing. I, I, I like what we do. We got a good band. Yes, it is. I love our worship here. And you know, again, I'm not going to sit there and say, you know that church with the choir, that's not real worship. Oh, sure it is. Sure it is. That's how they express through music their worship for the Lord. And, and we cannot... Did I say cannot? cannot? We cannot be critical of people who do things different. Now, I, I, I probably would have a hard time with grunge worship. <laughs> Growling, you know. I don't know that that, that, that that would fall under that category. But you know what? I, years and years ago when I was in the high school ministry, um, there was a group of young brothers. They, they, were, they were rappers. 
and they were called the Dynamic Twins. And they were dynamic. And they were twins. And you know, I, don't, I didn't like rap. And I thought, oh, jeez, boy, this is going to be something. And you know what? Man, those boys love Jesus. And they, through the spoken word, exalted the name of Christ. And they were giving glory to God. And it may not have been a musical style that you would find on my CD player, but I wasn't going to judge them because it was different than what I liked. Man, they love Jesus. Those boys love Jesus. And people came to Jesus the night they did their little mini concert. So, listen, let's be careful about being critical uh, in these areas. And as I said, when our worship starts here, you want to stand, get up. You want to sit, stay seated. But if you're going to do anything, worship. Because that's what we're here to do. Somebody say... Amen. Father, we are grateful once again for your word this morning. Thank you uh, that Paul told us what was going on and the division that was being created. Thank you, Lord, that he could rejoice, uh, though the integrity of the, the, the speaker wasn't equal to the integrity of the message. He could rejoice that the gospel was going out. And Lord, I pray that this super hypercritical spirit that's been sweeping through your church in these last days would be put down because it's not of you. And Lord, Paul and others have named names and we know that that's our responsibility. We are to protect the apostolic doctrines and preach them unashamedly and uncompromisingly. But Lord, because somebody sits on a stool and does it is none of our business. Because somebody does it louder than somebody else is none of our business. And the same is true with our worship, Lord. Help us, God, to simply rejoice that our names are written in the book of life. And if somebody does something differently but non-heretically, help us to rejoice in that too, even though it may not be to our taste or liking. So Lord, I pray that the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace would prevail in your church, your church around the world, including this one. And Lord, that people would begin to talk about us as the people who love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, not the people who fight over every little thing. Help us in that, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.